Well, good morning, church family. If you want to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to pick up 1 Thessalonians again this week. And and while you're doing that, I I just want you to, to know that we're becoming even more intentional and purposeful about our planning to reunite as a church family. I hope that we will have a proposed date to you very soon. And I just want to say thank you so much for your patience as we have prayed and sought counsel and wisdom about the best time uh, to reunite on a Sunday together. And so uh, hopefully very, very, very soon uh, we'll be reunited in that way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 is where we'll be focusing today. And just as a way of reminder, remember three missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, have traveled to the Greek city of Thessalonica. Starting with the Jewish synagogue, they reasoned from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied, crucified, resurrected, and returning Messiah. Some of the Jewish synagogue members believed that message, and some did not. The good news of Christ spread to the Gentile community. And after a while, some of those uh, Jewish synagogue members who had rejected Christ began to be jealous of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and so they hired some bad actors to stir up persecution against the three, eventually forcing them out, uh, out of town and then forcing them out of another town. Now it's months later, and Paul especially is concerned about the Thessalonians' faith because the persecution that had been levied against the three missionaries is now being aimed at these new Christians. And he's concerned that maybe their new infant faith has withered under that stress. And so they send Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report, to see how things are going. And Timothy comes back with good news. The Thessalonians are doing great. And this letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy is a response to that great news. Let's start in verse one of chapter four. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says for other matters, you can see at the end of chapter three and beginning of chapter four, the apostle Paul is sort of changing gears, moving from part one of the letter to part two of this letter. He wants them to live to please God. This should be their finish line. This should be their aim. If you can remember back to the archery section of your junior high or high school PE class, what's the target? What's the bullseye? What's the dead center that our lives should be aimed at? They should be aimed at pleasing God. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Our church vocabulary fools us into thinking that worship takes place on a Sunday morning from this hour to that hour. But biblically, as followers of Jesus, worship has no start and it has no end. It is everywhere, it is always, and it is in every. Thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Pleasing God is our aim, and that is a 24-hour a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year pursuit. Paul says he wants the Thessalonians to do this more and more. I've noticed a bad habit in myself. You may have noticed the same habit 
Not in me, of course. Notice that bad habit in you. In the early days of my Christian faith, I was hungry for God's word. I was hungry to apply that word uh, to my own life. I wanted to hear every sermon that I could hear and then uh, root out sin, uh, find new ways to follow Christ. But for some reason, as we grow in our spiritual maturity, we, we we reach this point where we're still taking in all of that content. We're still taking in those sermons. We're still listening to those podcasts. We're still reading the scripture. But instead of applying them to ourselves, we almost exclusively apply them to other people. Are other people living up to this? Are the people I know living up to this? Are the people that I'm interacting with on the internet living up to this? Are our are, are, are spiritual leaders living up to this? Are our politicians living up to this? Now listen, if you go and look for Christian failure, you are going to find it. And what happens is the failure of others convinces us that we are more than fine. That status quo for us is good enough. And and that failure in others lulls our spiritual growth to sleep. So it could be that you and I are pleasing God. And when we compare our efforts to please God to someone else's efforts to please God, we feel more than fine. But the Apostle Paul doesn't just leave it at make it your aim. He says to do this more and more, a more and more kind of faith. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So now we've come to the PG part of the message. I'm sorry if you're gathering with other people and it, it just got awkward. I'd encourage you not to make eye contact for just a little bit. I know that also our kids are with us, and so I'll try to keep this as kid-friendly as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 can be. The three missionaries write to the Thessalonians about their sanctification. The best way to understand that word, I think, comes in Exodus chapter 40. In Exodus chapter 40, God's people are living in tents out in the wilderness. They've been powerfully rescued from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. They are on their way to the land of promise, but aren't there yet. And so they're living in tents in the wilderness. And in the most gracious act in history, God, the creator God, the everlasting God says, because you, my people, are living in tents, I too will come and live in a tent with you. Now, of course, God is everywhere. There's nowhere on earth that he's not. But he says, I'm going to give an address to my presence on earth. I'm going to live in a tent among the tents of all my people. The the Exodus calls that tent the tabernacle. And God gives them specific instructions for how that tabernacle should be built, uh, what it should be made of, the instruments and the equipment that should fill it, and how the priest should minister inside of it. And in Exodus chapter 40, Moses is dedicating some of that equipment to the tabernacle. And so he purifies it. Before God, he purifies the instruments of the tabernacle. And then they're set aside because they have an exclusive purpose. So if you are a priest and your candle holder at home broke, you couldn't use the candle holder of the tabernacle. You couldn't just borrow it because it has been purified and set apart for a specific use inside that tabernacle. And that's what Paul says has happened to us in the New Testament. Christ's blood has purified us from our sin. And we've been set apart. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that we've been uh, plucked out of the domain of darkness. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We've been set apart 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we've been set apart to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. So in the same ways that those, those tabernacle pieces of equipment and instruments were sanctified, we've been sanctified too. And he says that a part of our sanctification is to avoid sexual immorality. Bible scholars believe that he's referring back to Leviticus chapter 18. But with the full teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures, our first half of the Bible, we call the Old Testament as well. And I would summarize it like this. It is God redirecting His people's desire for sexual intimacy and fulfillment to the context of a God-centered commitment between a husband and a wife. God is redirecting His people's desire for sexual intimacy and fulfillment to the context of a God-centered commitment between a husband and a wife. Now, I know that this is out of step with our culture, and actually it was out of step with the culture of the Thessalonians. The Greeks and the Romans had even found ways to use sex as acts of worship for their gods and goddesses. But remember our salvation. In Christ, we've been transferred. We've been removed from the domain of darkness including its sexual ethics. And we've been transferred to God's kingdom. And God's kingdom has its own set of sexual ethics. And we see those revealed in the pages of the scripture. Verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. He tells them to learn to control their bodies because I think Paul is making an acknowledgement here that it's going to be difficult for the Thessalonians. In the culture that they were raised in and the things that they had been doing, he knows it's going to be a war, a fight against that seed of sinful nature that's in all of us. But because we've been transferred and been sanctified, just like those tabernacle instruments, our bodies are to be used for what is holy and honorable. Let's take it out of this context for just a second. This is why we shouldn't gossip. Because we've been purified by the blood of Christ. Our mouths have been set aside for works that are holy and honorable. And so to use our mouths for something that does not bring honor and holiness is a misuse of the sanctification that God has set us aside for. And why should they pursue the sanctification with their bodies? Because they aren't like the Gentiles who don't know God. They do know God because of Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do we win the fight against sexual sin? God, the creator of heaven and earth, has revealed himself to us. We know him in the face of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 6, And that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. So here he expands the responsibility. Not only are we to learn to control our bodies in private, we're also responsible for how we might mistreat or take advantage of brothers and sisters concerning these issues. When our passions are in control, someone will always get hurt. We are to treat one another as brothers and sisters. We don't coerce or manipulate or tempt someone into sexual sin. We don't text someone 
if they want to Netflix and chill. And we certainly don't sexually assault someone. You would hope that you wouldn't have to say that out loud in the church, but statistics and histories and anecdotes tell us that absolutely we do. We don't use other people. We do everything in our power, not only to be holy and honorable ourselves, but to protect and value the holiness and honor of our brothers and sisters. And Paul says that the Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins, often sexual sin, and certainly manipulation, coercion, and abuse is done in secret. But Matthew chapter 6 reminds us that our God is able to see into the secret places. And Paul here says, not only did I tell you, but I also warned you, meaning he takes this very, very seriously, and we should too. Verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Verse 9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now already, multiple times in this letter, he's referenced and even complimented their love for one another. And here he says, not only are you great at loving each other in your local church, everybody in your region knows how much you love them. That would be like somebody saying, not only is Bayou City Fellowship really loving one another, they're really loving to every church in Houston. They're really loving to every church in Texas. But notice that he's complimenting their love, but he's not satisfied with it. Because in the same way that he wants them to please God more and more, he wants them to love one another more and more. He commends their love, but he's not satisfied with it. And, And remember how Jesus defines love. He does so in Luke's gospel with the Good Samaritan. Love for neighbor is to interrupt my plan and to serve and help someone else. So the question we need to ask ourselves, am I stopping to help people more and more and more? Here's what I'm asking myself today. Are my habits feeding my love for other people or starving my love for other people? I mean, I don't need to tell you that we live in a very segmented and divided society. I mean, you can find a group that is specifically for you. I'm sure somewhere in the world, somewhere on the internet, is a group for left-handed people who love broccoli. And if you are a left-handed person who loves broccoli, you're going to find some other left-handed people who also love broccoli And guess what? Some business somewhere is going to figure out that they can make a little money serving left-handed people who love broccoli. And so they're going to find a way to deliver content to you. Now, here's what's interesting about that content. It serves to divide us and segment us even more and more. Suddenly, I don't have to really listen to news outlets or news podcasts or uh, uh, listen to influencers out in the world who are right-handed and love peace. Because I can get all of the news and the information that I need tailor-made to me. So we, as the people of God, and I think this week more than any other week, have to say, hold on, time out. Time out, time out, time out. Am I growing less and less loving people? 
Am I stuck in some cycle that I accidentally found myself in that is actually pushing me further and further away from other people? Because what God would have us to do is to come out of those divisions, to come out of those segments, to grow in our love more and more. Is your lifestyle, is your, are your habits, are my habits, are they feeding our love for one another or is it starving our love for one another. The call of God to love one another is high, it is lofty, and it is not negotiable. Love one another more and more. Verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, what do the three missionaries mean when they encourage the Thessalonians to lead a quiet life? It's a restful, peaceful life. The Hebrew word shalom comes to mind. It is a life filled with the peace of God, an experience of that peace, and an enjoyment of that peace. When I was in high school, I worked at a public pool. Every day after work, before we rushed off, we would all take a swim. And, and one of the lifeguards was a, a swimmer on the, the, at the local college. You know, all day long, we would watch amateurs swim. And when an amateur swims, and I put myself in this category, it's messy. And they're splashing, and the technique is not good. And, but when he swam, it was like a knife cutting through that water. There was almost no splash. And when I read the words, live a quiet life, I think about him. I think about the differences between almost everybody else who was swimming in that pool in this profession. Am I flailing around in my life? Am, am I making a lot of noise? Am I drawing a lot of attention to myself? Or am I living a quiet, restful, peaceful life? He says to mind our own business. Now, what does he mean? You know, it's hard to say that John the Baptist was minding his own business when he said to King Herod, hey, you shouldn't have stolen your brother's wife. It's, it's hard to imagine Jesus minding his own business when he comes into the temple and he overthrows the tables filled with money and he makes a whip and he drives out the livestock that you could buy for the sacrifices of the temple. It's hard to imagine the Apostle Paul was minding his own business in Galatians chapter 2 when he calls the Apostle Peter out on his racial partiality. It's hard to imagine the Good Samaritan was minding his own business when he stopped to help the man beaten and broken. What does he mean that we should mind our own business? It means that if you're going to watch over someone's life, make sure that life is yours first. If your watchful eye is going to look out, make sure it first looks in. Are you paying attention to your own life? This is what keeps us from Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees when he says they're trying to pull out tiny little splinters out of other people's eyes. Meanwhile, they have huge pieces of lumber sticking out of their own eyes. He also encourages them to work with their hands. Remember, some of the Thessalonians, as I mentioned in the previous weeks, they are so convinced Jesus is going to return at any moment that they've just retired. Why do I need a job? Jesus is going to return. He's going to give me food. He's going to give me a place to live. But now those people have become dependent on the generosity 
of the other Thessalonican Christians. And so the Apostle Paul is, is telling them, no, 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 no. We, we trust God and we work hard. We trust God and we work hard. And look what happens if we do those things. We will win the respect of those outside the faith. If you pay attention to your own life, if that life is peaceful, and if you work hard, that is a sure gospel-spreading strategy. Well, these 12 verses have covered a lot of ground. Pleasing God, sanctification, sexual sin, living with the peace of God, being self-aware, working hard, loving one another. It's almost difficult to know where to even start putting those things into practice. And so I want to end this morning with just us taking a minute of silence to reflect, to pray. God, what is my response to these scriptures which you have inspired and preserved for me? So would you take a minute and just reflect and pray? God, what is my next step of obedience in putting these scriptures into action and being a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Well, God, would you fill us with your strength and power so that we can follow through on these scriptures? Would you shine your light in the place where you want our next step to be? God, I pray you would find us faithful to do these things which you've recorded for us. We recognize them, we hear them. And now we want to do them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for worshiping with us and opening the word. And and we're going to close our gathering today in the same way that we do every Sunday with a time of praying for one another. And so if you need prayer of any kind, if you're carrying any burden that has just become more than you can bear, If you've got some tests, if you've got some medical stuff waiting in front of you and you just want to hear somebody pray for you, I want to encourage you to call the number that you see below on the bottom of the screen. Our prayer team is standing by with their phones in hand. They've been praying all morning already for you. And what a gift it would be to be able to hear their prayers yourself. So I want to encourage you to pray uh, with somebody today. Call in and we're going to worship uh, together. Let me pray one more time. God, we, we thank you for... Um, brothers and sisters of faith, we, we thank you that we carry one another's burdens. And, and I pray for every person in our church family today who's hurting. I, I pray that you would minister to them. And I pray you would give us the opportunity to serve them in some way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.